Hello, and welcome to this series on the ancestors of the book of Genesis. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we will get started. Lord, we come before you right now asking for understanding, asking for guidance, and most importantly, asking that you will somehow unsettle us about the text here today. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you open our eyes to something new that we have not seen before. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, my friends, welcome, welcome, and welcome. I hope that you all are staying safe during this season. I hope that you all are staying well, and I hope that uh, that in some way we as the church are continuing to be the church even as we are not able to be with one another physically. We still have many opportunities to reach out to one another uh, and to share the love of God with one another. My friends, we are going to be continuing in our study of the book of Genesis, particularly looking at the ancestors. Of course, two weeks ago, we looked at Abraham. Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, And last week we looked at Ishmael and we looked at Hagar. And so now this week we are going to look at Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac, of course, is Ishmael's brother, half brother. Now you'll recall we talked about how Ishmael goes on to become the patriarch of Islam. Uh, Isaac is going to go on to become the patriarch of Judaism. And the promise is fulfilled through both lines in many respects. Remember, the promise to Abraham is that he will become many, uh, the father of many nations. And so we see multiple nations unfolding here. However, the book of Genesis, the storytelling of the book of Genesis is going to continue to unfold um, through, is going to continue to unfold through the lineage of Isaac. So my friends, uh, let us dive in as we talk about Isaac. And, and one of the characteristics that we're going to see in, in Isaac is sort of the, uh, the, the storytelling elements that lead up to his birth. Recall that Abraham receives the promise in Genesis chapter 12. And then Abraham receives the promise again in uh, Genesis chapter 15. He's getting older and it's still just a promise. And he maybe asks about that a bit. Then in Genesis 17, uh, once again, we get another telling of the covenant with Abraham. And once again, Abraham is getting older. And once again, Abraham is standing there holding only the promise, not necessarily its fulfillment. And so Abraham has some questions at this point. So, my friends, uh, one of the things that we see, though, is this theme of laughter. Abraham did not necessarily believe that this, uh, or let, let, let's say he doesn't always show the characteristics of belief in this promise. Genesis 17, verse 15, recall, um, uh, it says, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, I will give you a son by her. Then Abraham, and get this, fell on his face and laughed. Abraham fell on his face and laughed at what God said to him. And he said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Okay, so Genesis 17, Abraham laughs. Genesis 18, now the same next chapter, Okay, once again, we're getting the same promise proclaimed to Abraham in verse 10. Then one of them, these visitors, one of these visitors said to Abraham, your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And now it is Sarah who laughs. Genesis uh, 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have grown old, will I have this pleasure? And you see, in, in, in both cases, two chapters back to back, in both cases, 
the, ans uh, the ancestors, they laugh at his promise. And this is what precedes the birth of Isaac, this theme of laughter. And so, my friends, when we get to Genesis chapter 21, where Isaac finally enters onto the scene of the story of Genesis, here's what we get. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. In verse 1, it continues, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. So we're seeing this promise finally being fulfilled. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And here in verse 3, Isaac finally gets his name. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore him. Now we have talked in many instances, many times, that... Um, Names are remarkably symbolic in the Bible. They're very important. And whenever we see naming taking place, we want to pause and ask, how does that name in some way shed light on the role that this character is going to play in the story to follow? And we've noticed that in each case, the ancestors oftentimes receive a change of name. Abram, his name is changed to Abraham, and this accompanies this, this promise that is given to him. Jacob, his name is going to be changed to Israel. Uh, even Joseph is going to receive a name change when he goes to, uh, down into Egypt. Every one of the ancestors receives a name change except for one, Isaac. Isaac is the only one of the patriarchs whose name does not change in that story. My friends, that should cause us to pause for a moment and recognize that there is something important about this name. Because you see, the name Isaac means either he will laugh or he laughs. There's already this theme of laughter surrounding Isaac's story. Genesis 17, Abraham laughed when he was told he'd have a child. Uh, Genesis 18, Sarah laughed. And now here he finally receives his name, and his name means laughter. When we continue reading, verses 4 through 7. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Here we're getting this theme of laughter once again. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have ever said to Abraham, uh, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. We get this theme of laughter surrounding Isaac, surrounding Isaac's entrance onto the scene. And one of the reasons why this is significant, we talked last week about Hagar, because uh, Hagar and Ishmael, because in the very next story now, this is when Sarah is going to send Hagar and Ishmael away in Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. And, and, and the way that language works, it says that um, Sarah saw Ishmael playing with Isaac. We oftentimes, uh, oftentimes use that language, playing with Isaac. Well, it, it, a translation of that, it's that sense of making him laugh. Ishmael is there making Isaac laugh, be, uh, having fun with him. And as a result, Sarah, uh, Sarah realizes which child is going to inherit uh, this estate, so to speak, which child is going to inherit Abraham's inheritance. And so she sends away Hagar and Ishmael. Now recall that in Genesis 21, this was the second time that Hagar was sent out into the wilderness. This was the second time that her life was threatened out there when she, the life of her and her son were just sent away to a place where they could have perished. Remember that happens in Genesis 16 as well. 
and what's fascinating is in the very next story, we get what's sometimes called the binding of Isaac, Genesis 22. Uh, in, in Jewish tradition, it's called the Akedah. And this is a remarkably troubling story, truth be told. Uh, if, if you will permit me to be honest with you for a moment, um, I really don't like this story. It troubles me. It disturbs me. And I think on, on some degree, it probably should. And, and I want to pause for a moment and recognize we don't have to like every story in the Bible to still learn from them, to still think about them and reflect on them. And in fact, one, one of the best lessons I was taught many, many years ago when, when reading the Bible, when thinking about how to read the Bible, um, a very powerful lesson that I was taught was to be aware of how we react to a story, to be aware of how I respond to a story. Some stories prompt almost a repulsion. Why? Some stories really draw me in. Some characters I really identify. Why? And, and, and it was this great thing that I was taught many years ago. It really, uh, really transformed the way I read the Bible. Because I was taught when, when you have a reaction to, the, to a Bible story, ask yourself why. When you're repulsed by a story, what about that story doesn't sit well with you? When you're troubled by a story, what about that story doesn't, uh, d doesn't quite uh, jive with you? What about it? And in the process, in the process of reflecting upon our responses to these stories, we can actually come to learn about ourselves. We, we talked uh, last week about Hagar and Ishmael. I don't like the story when, um, when uh, Abraham and Sarah send Hagar out into the wilderness, essentially to die in Genesis 16. And when I think about it, why don't I like that story? Well, one, she's treated very unfairly. Uh, two, this was not her choice. This was forced upon her. Uh, she was a slave in the ancient world. But then three, I think the thing that troubles me the most is when the angel of the Lord tells her to go back. And I have to ask myself, well, why is it that that troubles me so much? Well, because I've, I've had a lot of friends who have told me that at some point they were told to return to an abusive relationship. And so when I read that story in Genesis, that, that's what I see Hagar being told to do is to return to this unhealthy situation. When, um, when I reflect on that story and I reflect on the reasons why I'm uncomfortable with it, it teaches me something about myself and something about how I tend to read the Bible. And that's how I learn the way that I read the Bible, the lens that I use in interpreting the Bible. This, this is what we sometimes call exploring your hermeneutic, exploring why we interpret certain passages the way that we do. Be aware of what these stories might prompt inside of you. It'll help you open your eyes to the ways that we read. And my friends, when we read Genesis 22, no matter what theological interpretation I have read, it has never sat well with me. And I think anyone who has a child can relate to that. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And notice that it says your only son. 
How many sons does Abraham have in this story? He's got two. He just sent one packing off into the wilderness, exiling him from the family. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, now let me pause for one moment and uh, be pretty explicit for, for anyone who may be watching this who is unfamiliar with uh, the biblical tradition. The Bible is pretty clear about a few things. One of them being child sacrifice is wrong. There are no questions there. There are no gray areas there. Torah is pretty clear. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 18. The list goes on. Child sacrifice is wrong, which is why this entire command is so shocking. And one of the reasons why I suspect that there's something in this story that is supposed to shock us, that is supposed to make us do a double take. There's something in this story that is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Let's keep reading. When, when, when we look at this story, that, that call, go to the land that I will show you. We've heard that language before. This is the language that Abraham heard in Genesis 12 when he was first called. Genesis 22 opens with the same language as Genesis 12. The same language that Abraham was called with. Go to a land that I will show you. Now, in, in, in Jewish tradition, it, it tends to interpret this, this entire story as revolving around Jerusalem or, or Mount Zion. Um, in Jewish tradition, they tend to say that the mountain to which Abraham travels would eventually become the Temple Mounts, that this sort of symbolic action uh, marks its sacredness almost. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. We'll keep reading. <laughs> then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I We'll go over there. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. And in, in, in this story, you know, we, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is going on? Um, it, it, it's almost designed to, to create this, this sort of knot inside of our stomach. Is, is Abraham being untruthful here? I mean, Abraham knows what he's about to do. Why is it that he would say, the boy and I will go over there, we will worship, and then he says, and then we will come back to you. You know, some interpreters have looked at this and, and, and taken this to mean that Abraham must have known that he would not end up sacrificing Isaac up there on that mountain, that, Isaac, that Abraham must have known in some way that Isaac was coming back down the mountain with him. Others look at it and say maybe Abraham was more concerned with what the, uh, what the other travelers with him would have thought. He's just presenting this front, this image. 
we would expect both of them to go up the mountain. We would expect both of them to come down the mountain. So that's what Abraham is letting, is letting stand. In either case, we see this tension between what Abraham is saying and what Abraham's about to do. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, he said, Father, and then Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. We have this command for Abraham to sacrifice his son. And throughout this story, we're seeing, I don't know if it's foreshadowing, hints uh, from Abraham. Abraham's words are saying that that's not necessarily what's going to happen. And so there's this question, what is this testing Abraham? What is this testing of Abraham? Why is there a difference between what God told Abraham to do and what Abraham is telling everyone else in the story? Is this a sign of Abraham's faith that he believes everything's going to be okay? Or is this a sign of the conflict within Abraham that he's not entirely sure? Keep reading. Then they came to the place that God had shown him. Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. <laughs> and, and here we, we just feel that the, uh, the tension tightening. Abraham was just saying, God will provide the lamb. Abraham was just saying, we, both of us will go up the mountain. Both of us will come down the mountain. And now here he is in verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to kill his son. We can see why this story is so troubling. But the angel of the Lord, verse 11, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I want to pause here for a moment because this, this tension that we see mounting, it's a tension between what God commands and what Abraham is telling everyone else is going to take place. And we finally see this way in which these two things converge. Abraham goes up to the mountain to offer his son. But in the end, his son ends up not being offered. This, uh, the, these, these narratival elements, these, this tension, they kind of converge here at this moment. But it only creates a new set of questions about what's really going on here. For now, I know that you fear God. Did God not know that before? Was God not sure before? What does it even mean for God to test Abraham? This story raises so many questions. And that's one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's been burned into the minds of interpreters across centuries. We're going to keep reading here, and then, and then we'll come back and kind of look at it as a whole. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On that mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
And, and, and I want to pause for a moment here because I think there's an interpretive clue in here. The Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, first, that language, mount of the Lord or mountain of the Lord, we recognize that from throughout the Bible. That's the phrase that's oftentimes used to refer to the Temple Mount or to Jerusalem. This is one reason why so many rabbinic interpreters saw this event as taking place uh, on the Jerusalem mountain. But, but here's, here's the other thing that stands out, though. If we go back to verse 8 or verses 7 and 8, when Isaac asks Abram or Abraham and says, where, where is the offering? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. We get this theme of provision. God will provide the lamb in verse 8, and then we get it again uh, when Abraham names this place. The Lord will provide on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. And here's what's so fascinating about that. This language of provide in Hebrew, ra'ah, literally translates as to see. The Lord will see it. The Lord will, we could probably say the Lord will see to it. And here's why this is so fascinating to me, because we have Abraham naming a location. And this name echoes something we've heard before. You see, my friends, this is not the first time that God has been identified as one who sees. This is not the first time that God is identified as one who sees things. You see, my friends, we get this same exact language in Genesis 16. Remember when, when Sarah is, uh, drives out Hagar and her unborn Ishmael, and she runs out into the wilderness, a place where her life is threatened, and there God sees her. God intervenes. And it's in this place where we get this very unique part of the story where Hagar actually names God, El Roy, the God who sees. And after that story, Abraham goes and sends her out into the wilderness again, a second time in Genesis 21. Her and her son out into the wilderness, a place where surely they'll die. And then here, the very next story, now God calls Abraham. Abraham, you take your son out into the wilderness. You see, my friends, I think one of the keys to this passage is actually the Hagar and Ishmael story. Because in the, very, in the chapter right before it, Abraham sends out Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness where her son Ishmael is, it's looking like he's going to die. And now in this very next chapter, Abraham, or God sends Abraham out into the same place, out into the wilderness where it's looking like his son now is going to be the one to die. And when, when, when Abraham and Isaac come through this, Abraham uses the same language that Hagar used for God back in Genesis 16. This is a God who sees. And you see, my friends, there's, there's, there's a lot of reflection we could do on this. On, on the one hand, God's, God puts Abraham in a situation that he has put someone else in, that he put Hagar in. But on the other hand, Abraham's statements of faith in this story, the fact that God will provide, his belief that God will provide, the, the, the belief that we see in this tension between what God commands and what Abraham's saying. Those words of faith are all traced back to Hagar from her experience out there in the wilderness. Recall that when Hagar goes out there in Genesis 16, uh, she, she has this experience with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord gives a child, or gives a name for her son. 
Ishmael. And then when she comes back to Abraham, it's at that moment, uh, Abraham names the child Ishmael. Well, how did Abraham know that story, that that was to be the son's name? Hagar must have said something to Abraham. She must have testified about what she experienced out there in the wilderness. And Abraham listened. And now when Abraham is the one who's out in the wilderness, whose words are at this, uh, whose words are on his lips? It's Hagar's words. Hagar's words of faith carry throughout this story and echo throughout this story. And, and here's one of the things that I find so powerful about this story. Because the truth is that Abraham is a really big character in the book of Genesis. And Hagar uh, re really only gets a couple of chapters. But in those couple of chapters, her words continue to echo far beyond the chapters that she's present in. Because she testified about who God was. Because she spoke about who God was. And you know what, my friends, in, in this world, we, we, we may only get to, um, get to show up in a couple of chapters. You know, in this world, we may not find ourselves in the halls of power. We may not find ourselves uh, listed among sort of the patriarchs, uh, so to speak. We may not find ourselves in a position of power or anything like that. But you know what? We can still testify. And you never know how far your words will travel when you speak the truth about who God is. In Genesis 22, it echoes what happened with, um, with Hagar and Ishmael so much. There are many points in the story that just echo it. Abraham finds himself in that same position. And now Hagar's voice, the words that Hagar spoke, are the words that are behind the faith that we're seeing him live out. Genesis 22. It by no means solves the interpretive challenges. It by no means resolves the questions that I still have about the story. But it does help me see the story in a slightly different light. And I hope it does for you as well. Let's, uh, let's continue here. In this story, one of the ways that, uh, you know, there's a version of this, of this story in the three Abrahamic faiths. So in Judaism, uh, they, they tell a version of the story. Christianity kind of tells the story in a certain way. And Islam also has a version of this story. Uh, of course, in Islam, as you know, it's Ishmael that's the one that's bound on the altar rather than Isaac. But what's fascinating is that we have a version of the story that is told, that is thought about, that is reflected upon in each of the Abrahamic faiths. And what's fascinating is this reveals to us some of the ways in which we tend to interpret stories in light of what we've, all, what we've already been taught. So, for example... In Christianity, when we read this story, how is it that we interpret it in a way that, that, that it's kind of a little more palatable, we would say? Well, we tend to see it almost allegorically or symbolically as an image for Jesus' sacrifice in our place. So just like how uh, Isaac is, is, the command is for Isaac to die up there on the mountain, but then God provides a ram in his place. In the same way we see Jesus as kind of taking our place, we see this substitutionary theme. And so in Christianity, we tend to interpret this story as almost foreshadowing or being symbolic. We take the faith that we've been handed on and we use that as a lens to interpret the story. Judaism does the same thing. So in Judaism, uh, oftentimes, and, and I want to be clear, there's a lot of diversity 
in Judaism, but there's this strong tradition of interpreting this story as being almost an image of Jewish martyrdom. Recall that uh, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith has been shaped by, by really, you know, genocide after genocide. And this theme of martyrdom becomes very prominent in, in many periods of, of Jewish thoughts. And so we see when they tell this story, they oftentimes see Isaac's, uh, you know, submission to this as reflecting the ideal submission to the call of God, even if that call ultimately leads to the end of our physical life here in this world. Islam similarly interprets this story in light of the faith tradition that it's inherited. So um, in Islam, one of, the, one of the key virtues of the faith is this idea of submitting to God's will. And so they see both Isaac and Abraham really as uh, exemplars of this. Both of them did not understand the will of God. Both of them didn't understand the, the, the ways in which God was working the story, but yet both were willing to submit to it, this theme of submission. In each of these cases, we see that we have this tendency when we interpret the Bible, when we interpret these individual stories, to interpret them in light of the faith that has been handed on to us. Now, my friends, as we come to a close, kind of these, these closing reflections here on Genesis 22. Immediately after this story, in Genesis 23, we get the death of Sarah. And following that, in Genesis 24, now we get Isaac and Rebekah. And then in Genesis 25, it's the death of Abraham. And so within this span of three chapters, we get uh, the death of the first generation of the ancestors, Sarah and Abraham. And we get uh, sort of the union of this next generation, Isaac and Rebecca. And what's interesting about Isaac and Rebecca about their stories is their stories, comparatively speaking, are relatively brief in the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, Isaac and Rebecca seem to look more like a hinge between Abraham and Jacob than anything else, because Abraham has... Uh, you know, over 10 chapters devoted to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob is also going to have the same uh, many, many chapters. But whereas with Isaac and Rebecca, they're kind of put here in the middle and hold only a, a short amount of space. In Genesis 24, we, we get this story now where Abraham sends his servants out, uh, out to the land of his countrymen to find a wife for Isaac because he doesn't want Isaac marrying, um, marrying any of the Canaanites. And so we get this story where, where the servant comes to a well, prays to God, Lord, uh, show me who the right person is. And he kind of sets up this test. He says, uh, when, when the young women of the town come out, he'll ask for a drink. And the one that is willing to not only provide him a drink, but provide his camels a drink, that will be the one. And what's fascinating here is we return to the symbolism of, of wells. We got that in the Hagar and Ishmael story. Recall that it's at a spring where the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. And here, once again, we get this well symbolism. And in fact, uh, wells uh, echo throughout the Bible in many ways. So Isaac and Rebekah, their union really begins at a well. Jacob and Rachel, same thing. Their union begins at a well in Genesis 29. Moses and Zipporah, uh, Moses meets him, his wife at a well in Exodus chapter 2. Wells are very symbolic in the Bible. They, they were central. Um, you know, in, in ancient life and ancient agricultural life, just for the survival of the community. And so oftentimes there's this idea of springs or wells oftentimes symbolize this idea of life. But they were also central gathering places. You know, even in rural settings, everyone had to come to the well eventually. And so we get this literary motif, this, this theme of life, this theme of the continuing of life 
that shows up here at the wells with uh, with Isaac and Rebecca. Now, when, when Isaac and Rebecca take over the story, when, when they continue on, we're going to see that in many ways, the story of the ancestors continues echoing through them. So they inherit the promise of Abraham, but they also inherit some of the character flaws of Abraham and, and uh, some of the threats to the promise that we see working out in Abraham, uh, with Abraham and Sarah. So with Abraham, one of the threats to the promise, one of the reasons why the promise seems so unbelievable is that Sarah is barren. Rebecca is going to be barren as well. Uh, one of the threats to the well-being of the promise is the endangerment of the matriarch, the endangerment of Sarah. So recall how Abraham goes down to Egypt and presents his wife, Sarah, as his sister. He then does the same thing again to King Abimelech later on in the story. Well, here in uh, Genesis 26, Isaac's going to do the same thing, presenting Rebecca as his sister rather than his wife, putting her in danger in order to save himself. And of course, with Isaac and Rebecca, we're going to see this theme of a sibling rivalry, two brothers, uh, two brothers who could lay claim to the inheritance. And the younger brother is going to end up superseding the older brother. We see that same thing with the Abraham story between Isaac and Ishmael. We see all of these echoes between these stories. Isaac is going to continue walking in this promise, but he's going to continue facing all the same threats to the promise. And we're going to watch and see as the next generation carries on. My friends, I want to uh, end with, with this passage from Genesis 25. This is the death of Abraham. In Genesis 25, it talks about the length of Abraham's life. And then in verse 8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And that, that language of being gathered to, to your people or gathered to your ancestors, that shows up a lot throughout the book of Genesis. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abram purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed his son, Isaac, and Isaac settled in Bir Lahai Roy. And here's what I want us to see. Is that the death of Abraham, we have both of his sons here again. Isaac and Ishmael. And after the death of Abraham, Isaac moves to a location, Bir Lahai Roy. That is the name of the well that uh, Hagar named when God showed up to save her out there in the wilderness. That's the place where Isaac goes after the death of his father. So my friends, I hope that, um, I hope that this story has been beneficial. Uh, I hope that the study has been beneficial. I hope that you have found uh, some useful information inside of it as you continue reflecting upon the text. Uh, please do go back, read through the story, uh, read through it nice and slow. Uh, reflect upon different elements of this story that tend to stand out to you. Next week, my friends, we're going to be looking at Jacob. Jacob and his famous name change to Israel. My friends, I hope that you all will stay safe, that you will stay well in this season, that you will continue caring for one another from an appropriate social distance. Uh, of course, if you have any questions about the story, um, please do feel free. Send me an email. Give me a call. Send me a text message or anything like that. I truly do miss being able to uh, talk to you all about, this, about these stories and hearing your reflections on them. May you all be blessed in this season.